Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we are travelling to Canada to speak to a man who has spent his career engaged in geotechnical work, whether that be involved in investigations on site, teaching in the classroom, or working forensically for the benefit of a courtroom. His career has now spanned five decades, with special expertise in underground infrastructure, trenchless technologies, and geotechnical engineering. He finds himself now as an associate professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. In his time, he has seen the entire development of the trenchless industry, certainly its growth in popularity over the last 30 years. In this episode, he will give us his take on some of the challenges currently faced by geotechnical professionals in the Canadian trenchless sector, and he gives some advice for people just starting out in the field. My name is Dr. Mark Knight. I'm a faculty member at the University of Waterloo. I've been at the University of Waterloo 20 plus years now, and my expertise is uh, underground infrastructure, trenchless technologies, and geotechnical engineering. So um, over that period, I've created a career in understanding soil pipe interaction, uh, liner design, did a lot of work on directional drilling and performance of direction drilling and then got into uh, education. We do a lot of uh, short courses, a lot of uh, best practice manuals, developing the standards, etc. So, and in my spare time, I'm also the executive director for the Center for Advancement of Trenchless Technologies, also known as CAT, which is also located at the University of Waterloo and I've been the executive director for probably over 16 years. The Centre for Advancement of Trenchless Technologies, or CAT, was originally founded in 1996. The city of Waterloo, locally here, was having a problem. They had uh, black fibre pipes. Basically coal tar bitumen impregnated pipes that will take the sewage from your house and connect to the network below the street. They were failing prematurely in less than 20 years, and the, it was costing around uh, $6,000 to dig them up and replace them. The city said, well, they were failing early, so they said that they would fix it from the house to the street, not just to the property line. And so they had a huge liability on, on their hands to be able to, uh, like it was something like $20 million liability to replace all these failing uh, lateral pipes. So they came to the University of Waterloo to find a way to do it without necessarily digging up from the house to the street and the gardens and removing all the trees. And they came up with a uh, pipe bursting technology that they found with a company called TRS Pipe Bursting out of Calgary. And out of that started a partnership between the municipalities, contractors, suppliers and manufacturers to start CAT to advance underground infrastructure knowledge and using trenchless construction methods. We are a research centre at the University of Waterloo, the oldest research centre and, uh, and the only one in Canada that really focuses in this area. Their membership covers all sectors, municipalities, suppliers, manufacturers, consumers, consultants, the whole breadth of industry. And they undertake research projects to test and validate new technologies, as well as educational seminars, contract testing, a little bit of everything. 
And it is not just the more sophisticated technologies of directional drilling or microtunneling that CAT concerns itself with. Mark says that all of the commonly used techniques have their place in the toolbox. Auger boring, pipe ramming, pipe jacking. They have their place in the trenchless application. So they're used quite commonly because they're very cheap. So if you've got relatively short distances, I've got to go underneath your railway track with a water main or a sewer. And the railway industry will want it, uh, a steel casing around any water main that goes underneath, just in case there is a break or a leak, it's not gonna wash out the railway. Um, that's a great application for pipe ramming or, or auger boring. For applications less than 100 meters in length, those primitive but sometimes challenging and misused techniques can be very successful. And it might be that on a smaller, lower value project with less sophisticated methodology, less trying requirements, you don't need to worry or invest much in site investigation, right? No. Site investigation, um, <clears throat> if I have mixed face conditions and I've got rather shallow cover and I'm going to use auger boring, how am I going to keep my auger bore online and on grade? It's going to come up. It's going to come out of the bedrock and on top. And I've been involved in litigation cases where there's been huge extra costs associated because of the failed install. And the installation methods were not chosen by the contractor. They were actually chosen by the engineer of record who specified the methodology in the design. So um, that's part of the issue around is uh, changing ground conditions. If I'm bidding a project based on uh, either bad soil information or no soil information, um, my costs are gonna be high because the contractor has to make money. So um, that is where the justification of uh, doing a geotechnical engine or a site, proper site investigation really comes in. You're actually gonna save money because you're gonna have reduced risk for the contractor. So depends, you wanna roll the dice. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but um, if you're prepared to lose and pay the, uh, the, the uh, payment to the contractor at the end of the day, plus the loss of time and extras, then, uh, then that's, that's all right. But uh, as soon as there's polarization and lawyers get involved, then uh, tell me what happens to the cost then. Geotech is cheap. Right. It feels like a lesson we've learned before, but are we at least going in the right direction? Oh, I'm completely going in the wrong direction. I mean, I'm fortunate enough, I get involved in a lot of these litigation cases, um, lack of geotechnical information, changing ground condition claims, and um, the contractor will win. The issue comes down to the size of the claim. If the project is small enough and the claim is relatively small enough, no one will litigate it. No one will bother to push it. Engineering fees are at a maximum are, is uh, $200 an hour Canadian to $300 Canadian. Um, once you get a lawyer involved in it, you're looking at $750 an hour and unlimited uh, cost. So I've been involved in projects where I've done more forensic engineering after the job was done than was ever done on the front end because it's gone into uh, litigation or some kind of mediation. So geotech is cheap. And if you want to use the lowest cost construction method and, and to have a good probability that is going to work, we need to make sure that uh, we choose the right tool. 
pipe ramming and auger boring are a lot cheaper than microtunneling um, or, you know, possibly directional drilling. And even in directional drilling and microtunneling, the contractor needs to know what drill fluids to use to be able to stabilize the soils on site. How do I know what to use if I don't know what's in the ground? So you're relying on previous contractor's experience. And while Mark points out that old complaint that people think they are saving money by skipping adequate geotechnical work, he also holds his own industry partly responsible. The lack of awareness from the geotechnical industry. I'm a geotechnical engineer. They undersell their services and the cost. Um, they'll low bid in order to be able to do. So um, I was doing a microtunneling workshop with one of our good, a good friend of mine that's a geotechnical consultant. And he was talking about doing geotechnical investigations for, for tunneling projects in, in the Toronto area. And he, he was talking about using advanced uh, geotechnical testing techniques. And I so asked him, I said, what do you mean by advanced geotechnical? He says, triaxial testing. I said, what do you mean advanced? Triaxial testing has been around forever. We teach it in undergrad classes. That's not advanced. That's standard geotechnical engineering. So Mark says one side of this is the lack of education on how to do geotechnical investigations for trenchless projects. The other is potentially even riskier. Another thing that I see in the industry in, in our local area is that the geotechnical engineers are also putting in recommendations on what techniques should be used to construct the project. And they're not experts at trenchless construction. They don't understand all the ins and outs and advanced uh, limitations and capabilities of equipment. So often those um, recommendations are wrong. And this is from a group of people who are known for being risk averse. But they're, they are putting recommendations on technologies and construction methodologies that they really do not understand and they're often wrong. If I'm a designer on a project and I get the geotech people to uh, do the geotech where I want the boreholes, and the information that I want, um, when I get the report back and they've got recommendations on construction methodologies, the first thing I tell them to do is to take it out. Because if left in and ignored, the potential legal havoc is enormous. And for Mark, the final weakness in current practice is the allocation of risk. The other reason is many people in, in their tender documents and construction documents try to throw all the risk onto the contractor. So they probably try to put statements in their contract specifications. Um, number one, that uh, the geotechnical report is to be used as guidance information only, and that uh, the contractor is responsible for doing their own geotech report. But the real question is whether or not that will stand up in court. Oh, you could, as I tell people, and um, and is you can write whatever you want in your tender specifications. And lawyers will always try to tell you that, uh, that uh, you can put this stuff in. The question is, will it stand up in court? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. Number one, if you have geotechnical information, it is a legal requirement that you have to provide all the information to the contractor. If you withhold that information as part of the bidding process, um, the contractor will win the, win the claim because you're, it's illegal to hold back information. Number two is who's the engineer of record and who's the designer? Is it the contractor in these cases? No, the engineer 
that's working for the owner is the one that's specifying the pipe, specifying the location, and basically specifying the methodology. To be able to do that, they need to have the geotech information. So if the geotech information is good enough for the engineer to design the project, why isn't it good enough for the contractor to rely on to construct the project? So in other words, if the geotechnical information is good enough for the engineer to design the project, why isn't it good enough for the contractor to rely on? A false argument, then. And the other fact is it's impossible for the contractor in a bidding phase to be able to go out and get the geotech information. Now, the other question that always comes up is getting around site investigation. The contractors are responsible for doing their own site investigation. So my question when I get into a debate over that, usually in a litigation case, is what do you mean by a site investigation? If I'm doing a directional drill and or I'm tunneling through the, I'm doing a site investigation because I'm going through the actual soils. The perception that I'm doing have to do boreholes as part of the site investigation is, is, is irrelevant. If I open cut and I'm doing it, I'm doing an actual site investigation along the line. So I see the whole information. So then you get into these kinds of uh, discussions and debates, and they usually don't last very long, and then and people will, will tend to back off. Mark's advice for people starting out in the field is to only advise within your area of expertise and learn it well. As far as optimizing SI, he argues for a phased approach. First of all, get your surficial geology maps and find out how varied the, the site is so you have an idea what it is. Or, the, or your geology maps, if you're going through the ground, you know, you want to know, are you going through, uh, am I going through shale and is there, uh, and then is there granite pluton in between um, that I'm going to have? Am I going to have mixed base conditions across the ground conditions? And I see many designs that people will put a water main um, and it's right at the bedrock interface in the soil and that's not a flat surface. Look for showstoppers. If it's a water main and I'm putting in a water main, it's a pressurized system. It doesn't flow by gravity, so I can go deeper. Go deeper. Get into consistent bedrock. Get into consistent ground conditions. Put the odds into your favour for a successful project. Mark gives an example from mid-February, where he had a contractor call about putting in a water main using directional drilling. But there was no SI specific to the project. The historical bores that there were, were for a wastewater treatment plant. So they gave the geotech bores for the wastewater treatment plant. Showed solid rock with RQDs of 95%. Contractors started drilling in one section of it, the rock was highly fractured. Now you're close to the bedrock surface and that's where the, the owners put, the engineers put the pipeline. Guess what? Contractor had all kinds of challenges. They finally got the pipeline in and there was a claim of $500,000 because of the extra time and requirements in order to be able to deal with the fractured rock. The engineer of record, the one that was designing it, refused the claim because they said they used they, were, they should have used a bigger diameter bore instead of a small diameter bore. An easy enough argument to make. In hindsight, it's always easy to be able to say, but if in highly fractured rock, I don't want a big diameter bore because everything's going to fall in and collapse. And I have to, and I have to be able to clean out with the drill fluids and get that stuff all cleaned out and, and not have it collapse. So I'm, I'm fighting a variety of different variables. If the contractor knew that the rock was fractured in that section, they would have gave a very different price 
which had been very close to the extra price that, that, that they had. So it was obviously a change in ground condition. And after finally having a conversation with everyone in the room, Mark says the owner accepted that it was a change in ground condition, and they paid the extra claim. So the contractor walked away. But, you know, unfortunately, there's an education process. And in this case, it was a, a highly experienced uh, engineer that designed directional drilling jobs. Um, but there was no geotech in the ground conditions chain. So, um, again, roll the dice. But, uh, but to think that you can hold contractors to that low price for very different ground conditions than you gave it to bid on, is that a reasonable expectation? And the answer to that is absolutely not. So based on all of his experience, all of the arguments he's heard, all of the problems he has seen on projects, what would a geotechnical expert like to see from the trenchless industry in future? Well, if it's not already too obvious... Do more geotech and not online, offline. Do what we used to do in geotech in the 1960s. Convince your clients to spend money on geotech and show them the return on investment. So that's part of what I teach in my undergrad classes now is do more geotech, not less. You need to sell the benefits of doing geotech. So I try to give these tools and those graphs and that information and mindset to say you're gonna save money, not lose money. If you think you're saving a dollar and it's gonna cost you 10 in the long run, you're naive, right? So yeah, we have to do a better job uh, educating clients and educating people um, to do a little bit of geotech. Contractors are phenomenally talented to be able to do things, but if you got really challenging ground conditions, you got to you you have a very different approach than than being reactive, trying to deal and find it afterwards. The Tunneling Podcast is a production of Reby Media, made in partnership with the British Tunneling Society. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovich, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And series supervision by Martin Nowak of the British Tunneling Society. Thank you for listening. You can find us on our website, tunneling.reby.media, or on LinkedIn.